Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks for May 2016. We like to start and end with gratitude, so we are going to start with the staff of the Windy Saddle. They're so awesome, and they treat us so well. We also like to appreciate Golden.com. They promote all of our events, and they keep all of us up to date on what's happening in the community. We love Golden.com. Thank you. If you haven't been on their website, you should check it out. They have daily news feeds as well about stuff going on around town and things happening with local businesses. So if you like Golden at all, it's a good place to go. We're going to get started, and I'm going to bring up our beer ambassador is on some kind of ambassadorial mission. So I'm going to bring up his deputy chief of mission here, Barb Warden, and she's going to give us a little talk about the beer tonight. As you know, when Frank is out of town, we hear a lot less about the beer because I'm not as scholarly about beer as Frank is. And as a matter of fact, Deanne took off with the flyers, so I'll tell you even less than usual about the beer because I don't have the descriptions. I know one is a wheat beer, one is an IPA. And um, last month, we had a reasonably good crowd. We bought what is uh, kind of a usual number of growlers, which was eight. Um, And we wound up with like four and a half growlers left. Now, when that happens, Frank is compelled to drink it all. He takes the growlers home. So this time, we bought six. And by the time I got here tonight, we were out of beer. Deanne, the restaurant owner, is over at Barrels and Bottles now buying us more beer. So be prepared to get seconds later. But since I don't talk about the scholarly aspects of beer, what I do is give you beer news around Golden. Um, I want you to know that Barrels and Bottles has a uh, reggae artist who's making a tour of the state of Colorado, and he's going to be at Barrels and Bottles Thursday night. So if you're into reggae, that'd be a good night to go to Barrels and Bottles. On uh, Sunday, Mountain Toad is having a... uh, beer and art kind of party, which they do periodically. They bring in local artist Jesse Croc, and he does a painting on the spot. Um, And people just sit there drinking beer and watching Jesse paint, which is more exciting than it sounds. (laughs) And at the end of the night, somebody gets to go home with the painting. Um, The While he's doing that, part of what makes it more exciting is that the Lookout Mountain Boys will be singing and doing rock. They're they're a local band, Golden People, and they do a lot of covers. And um, I I only know one of them personally, but I know he's an attorney for the state. He works for the state attorney general. So they're a bunch of respectable citizens who turn into a rock band at night. And they do a lot of gigs around Golden. And they're a lot of fun. Uh, That will be going from 3 to 7 on Sunday. Um, I tried to come up with something to say about Cannonball Creek, and all I can say is that they have a food truck every night of the week, and they're very good about posting it on their uh, Facebook page, which a lot of people aren't. So they have various food things coming in this week, and I noticed that the one for tomorrow night does wild game, and I thought, okay, things like venison. And the first thing I saw on their menu when I visited tomorrow night's vendor's site is kangaroo burgers. So if you've always wondered what kangaroo tastes like, go to, Barrel, or go to Cannonball Creek tomorrow night and you can find out. Golden City Brewery is selling, you know those um, tasters, uh, the trays that have um, partitions and, it's, and it, uh, they're colorful and they're pretty and they have little taster glasses on them and they're selling um, the taster glasses with a set of you know, the, the taster trays with the uh, set of 
six taster glasses that have the Golden City Brewery logo on them um, for 25 bucks. And I think that would make an excellent Father's Day present. And I was going to get one for Frank, and then I thought, what is Frank going to do with three-ounce beer glasses? <laughs> but speaking of beer glasses, as always, we have Golden City beer glasses available. They are 6 bucks a piece. They are $20 for a set of four. And they would make a fantastic Father's Day present. Yes. So come see me if you need Golden beer uh, talk glasses. Um, and then I wanted to mention one non-beer thing. We also have two craft distilleries in town, and one of them is State 38, and they're located in the um, industrial park that's over kind of west of Coles and Home Depot, and they're very excited because they're coming out with two new whiskeys, and, and the release is this week. And they made kind of a micro-batch about a year ago, and they took them to people in the distilling industry, and they were very excited about it. So there's a lot of buzz about these two new whiskeys. And they're, um, Thursday night, there's a VIP party, and, <laughs> and to be a VIP, all you have to do is pre-order a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> um, so they're going to have um, the golden bakery, Great Pool Bread, is going to be there Thursday night and Friday night, and they're baking bread out of the same grains that are used to make these two whiskeys that they're releasing. And then on um, Saturday, they're going to have Jesse Crock there painting. <laughs> um, the two whiskeys are, are spelled differently. One is a Scottish um, peat-smoked whiskey spelled without an E at the end. It's W-H-I-S-K. Uh, S-K-Y, and um, he imported Scottish peat-smoked peat? No. Malt? Barley? What is it you put in whiskey? Peat? Thank you. Imported it from Scotland, and that's what he's used to make that whiskey. He's also making a um, bourbon whiskey, and that one's spelled with an E-Y at the end. Anyway, they're both being released this weekend. He's having Three nights of parties, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, um, 4 to 7. And it'd be a nice thing to stop by, wish them well. Um, if you want to find them or pre-order one of the glasses so you can be a VIP, it's state-38.com. And then one last thing. Um, there is a recurring beer event in this town. It happens most months. It's Thirsty Thursday at the Mountaineering Museum. And they always bring in um, craft beer. It's not always golden beer, but they um, have beer, and the donations are voluntary. Um, You get free admission to the Mountaineering Museum, and it's a lot of fun. And that's going to be on the 19th this month. The brewery is Upslope Brewing Company, which is um, Boulder Boulder Brewery, and they're going to have music by, get ready for it, the Lookout Mountain Boys. That it, it's usually Thirsty Third Thursday, which I thought was a great name for it, but occasionally they make it not on the third Thursday, so they kind of drop the third part. So it's Thirsty Thursday. And this month it's the 19th, which I think happens to be the third Thursday. Thank you. Awesome. I have just a quick comment about this event at Mountain Toad where Jesse Crock is painting. It's not just everyone else that's drinking the beer. So is Jesse. And so he's generally pretty productive. Last time I went, he made seven paintings, and we even went home with one. So if you're interested in his work at all, it's kind of a cool thing. 
to check out. You can see him make this piece of art you can take home. If you win the raffle, it's a whole long story. You gotta go to know. We're gonna bring up our speaker, Jason Hansen. He is our first return speaker for Golden Beer Talks. He was here last year talking about a book he wrote about water, A Ditch in Time. He wrote with our state historian, Patty Limerick. He is the deputy state historian. He works for CU in that capacity, and he also works at History Colorado, or maybe that's, anyway, he'll explain, the capacities. And because he is such an expert on history and water and agriculture, he's kind of bringing it all together. As he says, following water through to its logical conclusion. (laughs) We're going to bring him up here to talk about beer and the history of beer. He lives in Denver. He's a house fixer upper type. He has two daughters. He's a great guy. Jason. Thanks, everyone. Oh, sorry about that. That's okay. (laughs) Thanks for having me back. Um, This was one of the most fun talks I gave. It was actually late 2014, I think, so more than a year. You guys have been doing this for a while. It's such a a cool thing. It's great to see a a full house here. Um, I handed around some handouts. I don't know if everyone got them. If there are any extras, please share. I also have some large format ones that might be a little easier to read for anyone who would like that. Um, The photocopy machine didn't do me a lot of favors putting those together, so uh, these are a little easier to read. If you need that, I'll just set them up here and people can throw them your way. So Whitney said, uh, I am a very confused person right now. I work at CU at the Center of the American West, which is a, a hub for uh, academic courses, uh, public events, and scholarship. I head up our um, research department uh, So I work there. I also work since January at History Colorado as the deputy state historian. Uh, I moved over there with my boss from the Center of the American West, Patty Limerick, who is the state historian. Uh, I am splitting my time there, although not very effectively right now. uh, (laughs) I just uh, feel like I have two full-time jobs instead of uh, a split job. Um, But it's really exciting. Uh, We just put together a slate of exhibits for the next five years, and I am excited to tell you all you are some of the first people in the state to hear this, that um, one of the first new exhibits that History Colorado is doing since uh, that I will be working on from the ground up is an exhibit on the history of beer in Colorado. Um, No. So so look for it uh, summer 2018. It takes a while to put these things together, so give me a little bit of time. But you'll be getting a little bit of a a sense of what it's about um, from the talk today. Okay, so today I wanted to talk with you uh, about, uh, I mean, you all know in this room more than most that you can learn things with a beer in hand. but you can learn uh, history with beer in hand. And I want to see if we can, can learn a few things about uh, Colorado's history before 1916 um, by focusing on beer. <laughs> Speaking, of. Speaking of, yeah. <laughs> the black IPA is really good. Um, I hope they get more of it. Oh, I think the, the beer is here. The beer is here, everybody. I will not be offended if you get up and, and head for more beer. Um, so I want to talk to you about how beer came to Colorado. Um, here's how it did not happen. There was not a proud German man riding a wagon pulled by a team of Clydesdales. His, his name was not Adolf. He, he did not 
roll up to the Rocky Mountains from the east and say, good people of Jefferson Territory, as it was called at the time, uh, I have been searching the land for a place where the water is pure and, and the people are tasteful and, and will appreciate my arts, and I have chosen here to make my beer. That is not how it happened. He did not open a brewery and name it Tivoli. He did not do any of these things. That man didn't, hap- that man didn't exist. Here's how it did happen. There was a man down in Las Vegas, New Mexico, named Frederick Solomon, he and his brothers were running a merchant shop. Uh, uh, they were merchants running a trading post down there. They heard about a gold strike along the South Platte and thought, hey, I bet we could sell some stuff to the people who are coming to the gold strike. And Frederick Solomon hustled himself out to St. Louis to buy some supplies and uh, with the money of a man named J.B. Doyle, who was a merchant out of Pueblo, uh, who was his silent partner in all of this, hustled himself back to Denver set up shop where the Auraria campus is now on the uh, uh, south bank of Cherry Creek uh, and started selling uh, his wares to the Argonauts who were headed into Colorado. Unfortunately, this is a miscalculation that many, many merchants made when it came to mineral strikes. People leaving on a cross-country journey to go search for gold generally tend to pack everything they think they're going to need. They don't just assume they're going to be able to buy it once they get there. And so people got to Denver and headed up into the mountains and didn't really stop to buy a whole lot of stuff at uh, Frederick Solomon's store. So business wasn't great for Frederick Solomon. Another merchant came to town, settled on the Denver City side of Cherry Creek, which is the north side of Cherry Creek, um, in what we call today Lodo, his name was, was John Good, and Frederick Solomon and John Good were both sort of looking out at one another's shops and looking out at dusty, sepia-toned Denver where you're, you could get almost anything you wanted in terms of entertainment if you had a little gold dust. But one thing you couldn't get at virtually any price was beer. Beer didn't travel well. It spoiled in the wagons along the way. And it was big and bulky and expensive to ship, even if it had traveled well. It was much more effective to to move whiskey around the West, which is why whiskey was such a frontier drink. But people liked beer, and Frederick Solomon and John Good, at around the same time, seemed to have had the idea, hey, there's a market for this stuff. We could sell it. And Frederick Solomon uh, got a miner, named Charles Tasher, who was down from the mountains for the winter and who apparently had some knowledge of how to brew beer, to partner up with him. And the two of them started brewing at the back of his shop. It was uh, uh, right at 9th and St. Louis Street, which is now underneath a campus building on Auraria. Um, so the, the students can sort of memorialize that if they want. Um, uh, they started brewing... John Good was a little slower, uh, but within the year, he had joined them as a, as a partner in the business. Um, it was a business. Frederick Solomon left after uh, three years, I think. Um, John Good stayed a little longer before selling it to his brewmaster, a man named Philip Zhang. Uh, Frederick Solomon went into water uh, delivery. He, he started funding water systems, uh, railroads. John Good went into banking and real estate investment. These were people who viewed beer as just one piece of a portfolio as a way to make money and 
do what everyone was out in Denver to do at the time, which was to get rich as fast as they could. Um, so it's not a very romantic origin story for a place that would come to be one of the centers of craft brewing in the entire world. And if they had known that in 2016 we would have had more than 300 breweries and been home to the Great American Beer Fest and, and uh, you know, been this amazing place to drink beer, they might have concocted a little bit better story, because that's what you did in the gold rush, is you concocted a, a better story most of the time. Um, so that's what I love about this uh, beer story. Um, they founded the Rocky Mountain Brewery to make some money. They made their money, and they moved on. They were pragmatic business people. It gives you a sort of uh, view of the economy in Gold Rush Denver and in really in any Gold Rush without all the, without all the glitter and without all the mythology. It, it, they didn't view it as... Sorry, my sister's calling. <laughs> she lives in Kansas City, and it's been a tough transition for her. Uh, Kansas City has fine beer, but it's not the same. Um, but I love that that lens on, on the economy that the Rocky Mountain Brewery gives us. Um, so shifting to the to the second picture on your little handout there. There was a market for beer in Denver because there was a market for beer all over the place in the second half of the 19th century. It's what um, one historian who's looked at this, Elliot West, who's a, a great historian, has called the, the beer boom. Um, so you have mineral booms meeting beer booms. Uh, before uh, the 1840s, really, beer was not an especially popular beverage in America. Uh, Americans preferred uh, hard liquor, especially rum and whiskey, and they preferred apple cider. Um, beer was beer sort of registered somewhere around wine in terms of popularity, which is to say not very popular at all. Um, people did drink it, but it was just sort of a when you didn't have anything else drink. Um, that all changed in the 1840s, uh, and it changed because lager beer made it to America. Lager yeast specifically made it to America. There are plenty of theories on exactly how that happened. Nobody knows ex for sure, but we do know that in the early 1840s, uh, a German man was brewing lager in Philadelphia, and from there it moved quickly across the country, um, and it traveled west as quickly as the population could establish uh, centers large enough to buy the beer that people would brew. Um, we all like a wide variety of beers here today. There's not even a lager uh, as one of our choices. Um, so we, we tend to prefer ales, which are a different type of yeast. I'm sure you all know that. Uh, in the early 19th century, our understanding from historical reconstructions of recipes and, and different brewing processes is that ales could be pretty inconsistent and sometimes downright terrible. And lagers offered this clean, crisp, refreshing, relatively consistent experience that people could, could really enjoy and get behind, and they loved it. They drank so much beer starting in 1850. And so when you get to Denver, when Denver is, is settled in 1859, that first beer is brewed in 1859, Denver's population, and I know we're in Golden right now, but I only have the numbers for Denver, sorry. Um, the population is, is doubling or tripling every decade, but the beer drinking is increasing even faster than that. Um, a couple of numbers. By 1878, uh, 
brewers in Colorado as a state, most of whom were in Denver, uh, but a few, one of whom notably was in Golden by that point, um, were brewing 23,000 barrels of beer a year, which is all right, but it was just a pittance compared to what was being brewed in St. Louis and Milwaukee. By 1893, 15 years later, they were brewing 235,000 barrels. So it's a tenfold increase in 15 years. It's, it's a pretty steep growth curve, and they were not keeping up with demand by all accounts. Uh, about a quarter of the beer was still being shipped in because uh, Colorado brewers were selling all they could and, and people were still thirsty. Um, <laughs> we have some rough consumption numbers, which are, are fun to throw around. In the 1870s, the average Colorado, and this includes men, women, and children, uh, was consuming between 15 and 20 gallons a person per year. By 1910, that number was up to 23 gallons per person, which was slightly but not embarrassingly above the national average of 21 gallons. Um, in Denver, however, that number was 43 gallons per person. <laughs> which was maybe a little embarrassing, but it paled in comparison to New York City where people were drinking 76 gallons of beer a year on average. This is, this is part of that beer boom. This is part of, that, uh, part of the immigration story of the 19th century, and uh, it's also part of um, the population boom in, in both of those places in the, in the second half of the 19th century. Um, who is drinking this beer? You can see in the picture it is men. It is almost exclusively men. Beer at that point was difficult to bottle and take home, so it was served out of kegs. It was mostly served in saloons. Women were not especially welcome in saloons. The uh, charitable saloon keepers would allow women to come to the back door and take a, a, a growler of something home. A growler usually was a bucket at the time um, or a discreet bottle of gin or something like that, but men were the ones who got to come in and hang out uh, in the saloon. If a woman was hanging out in the saloon, she was not the kind of woman that you generally wanted to bring home to your mother. Um, so all this beer drinking requires a lot of barley. And if you uh, flip your page there, um, you will see uh, a picture of some of that barley being harvested in the 1890s. Uh, it was requiring a lot of barley. And most of that barley was being imported by Colorado brewers at the time. Uh, it was being imported primarily from California and Utah, as well as the Midwestern uh, growers um, as rail links got uh, increasingly um, reliable and connected to various points in Colorado. It wasn't very difficult to ship the beer in. But then as now, brewers wanted uh, local product when they could get it. And a number of Colorado brewers actually started seed programs where they would buy the seed uh, and sell it to the brewers at cost, or sell it to the growers, I mean the farmers, at cost, with a guarantee that they would buy it back at a good price when it was grown. So it's it a good business. And uh, Adolf Kors, you can see there, um, he, he did this. Uh, had some pretty rigorous quality standards even back then. Screenings were returned. Um, uh, Samuel Pells ran Crystal City Brewing up in Boulder. He did this. Zhang's Brewing Company did this in Denver. That was the largest brewer at the time. This was a common practice. Despite that, there, there seems to have been a kink in the market because at least one farmer wrote into the, it was uh, the, the Golden Transcript, I think, um, originally. Uh, that's right, Golden Transcript. Um, 
and said that he was quitting growing barley, that he would not be growing barley the next year, even with the good deal from the brewers, because the market was such that it was still difficult to sell it. And we're not sure exactly why. He didn't elaborate, and the, the Rocky Mountain News actually reprinted it with a sort of skeptical commentary. Uh, they said, why is it so hard to sell? We drink as much beer as we can brew here, and obviously it should be easy. But the answer seems to be that in Colorado, where the growing seasons are short and the weather makes them uncertain, and grain often had to be hauled to uh, a maltster or a brewer willing to do the malting, um, over mountain passes that could uh, be treacherous at times or, or could uh, you know, have bad weather on them. Um, it just wasn't worth the effort for these growers to go through all of that. And when grain rose above $1.25 a bushel, which is about $26 in today's money, it was cheaper for the brewers to actually import the malt from the Midwest on railroads. So Already, our, our local brewing scene is, is branching out. It's becoming a little more uh, nationally oriented. Um, hops. If grain was hard, hops were harder. Brewers wanted hops. Hops were hard to get. They had to be imported from New York or Wisconsin, then from the Pacific Northwest, or all the way from Europe. So bre brewers, then as now, thought, hey, what if we could get people to grow them here? Wouldn't that be great? Um, and a couple people did did try. You see a couple of newspaper articles there on the, uh, this is the, I think it's the f top left corner of, of your page there, um, talking about a couple of fields near Morrison in, in Denver where, where people were trying to grow hops. Um, and you can see the Fort Collins newspaper editor there sort of haranguing a hops growers, saying, hops growing is profitable. The, the industry in, in the Pacific Northwest is worth $20 million. Why, why can't we do that here? Well, the answer is because they get a lot more sunshine at those northern latitudes. And that means that the yields that the hop varieties they were growing back then uh, were substantially greater for these um, northern growers than they were in Colorado. They just couldn't compete. Um, and so once again, you see brewers saying, yeah, we'd love to have these local hops, but it's actually cheaper for us to buy them from Europe because they do such a good job growing them so efficiently in Europe, it's even cheaper than buying them from the Pacific Northwest or, or from uh, Wisconsin or, or New York. Um, and the brewers, uh, brewers are great at turning uh, you know, challenges into, into strengths. The brewers made a virtue out of these imported hops, and you can see the, the Coors ad there. Uh, only the finest imported hops. It's local grain, but only the finest imported hops. Um, sort of a brewer's serenity prayer, you know. Uh, cha <laughs> change the things you can and, and uh, be serene about the things you cannot change. And, and uh, So hops, um, hops remain difficult to get, and that first beer that was brewed by the Rocky Mountain Brewery uh, was remembered by one of one uh, sort of notable lush of the time, as uh, his name was uh, O.G. Goldrick. He's he's uh, he claimed to be a professor. Um, uh, he was mostly a drinker, as far as anyone can tell. Uh, <laughs> but he gave eloquent speeches at the Fourth of July in Denver, and and one of those speeches he he remembered that the uh, beer that first beer brewed in Denver was mostly innocent of hops. Uh, that was his phrase, innocent of hops. And uh, it makes sense because hops, uh, those hops were allegedly hauled in an ox cart from Ohio by John Good. That's how he supposedly got his partnership in the brewery. And they never got that much easier to get here in Colorado um, until you had uh, these rail links that were linking the East Coast 
to Denver um, and bringing in uh, transatlantic hops. So all of a sudden, we're, we're out to uh, globalization has impacted our nice little brewing industry here in Colorado. It's only taken about 30 years for it to happen. Um, and with globalization and uh, increased market activity, market forces, comes increased competition. You have the large brewers on the front range, the Coorses, the Zangs, uh, the Denver Brewing Company, uh, starting to ship their beer out to the smaller communities in Colorado and even some in Wyoming and Utah. Um, by the same token, you have uh, Anheuser-Busch shipping Budweiser to Colorado by the 1870s. Uh, you have uh, Schlitz opening up its own bar on 17th Avenue in Denver in uh, the 1890s. Um, so there's, there's increased competition. Uh, and then as now in, in, a, in a scenario that will ring true for us all, um, there were a couple of ways for brewers to handle this competition. One was to look around for a partner and make a merger. Um, and the, the great case for this is uh, John Good, who was one of our first brewers, who went into banking and real estate uh, as a banker, made a loan to a fellow German uh, to open a brewery that that person called the Milwaukee Brewery. Uh, in the late 1890s, that uh, John Good foreclosed on that brewery for missing some payments uh, and decided that at that stage in his life, he wanted to become a brewer again. So he took it over. And he renamed it the Tivoli. And he, in 1901, merged with the Union Brewing Company so that they could uh, harness those economies of scale. And the Tivoli Union uh, became the beer that, if you lived in Colorado in the 50s and 60s, you remember drinking. It was uh, that and Coors were really the two mainstays uh, in Colorado um, throughout the middle of the 20th century. One of the four breweries that survived prohibition here in Colorado was the, the Tivoli Union. The other way, besides merging, you could look around for a capital infusion. And uh, Zhang's, which was the descendant of that original Rocky Mountain brewery, and at that point the largest brewery in the whole region, not just Colorado, but the whole region, uh, Zhang's was feeling the pressure of competition, looking around for uh, uh, an infusion of capital, and ran into some investors who were looking to infuse some capital. These investors happened to live in London. They were wealthy capitalists living in London, looking all around the world for places to park their, their capital. And uh, for a while in the 1890s, uh, these London capitalists really liked the idea of buying American breweries. And they bought breweries in San Francisco. They bought breweries in Philadelphia. They bought breweries in Detroit and New York. And they bought two breweries here in Denver, one of which was Zangs, the other was the Denver Brewing Company. Um, they, uh, they did provide that infusion of capital. But they weren't just buying breweries. They were also buying uh, railroads, or they already owned the railroads. And they were buying uh, growing operations in the Midwest, barley growing operations and maltsters in the Midwest. They were looking for a monopoly on the American beer industry. Because, of course, the British knew how to brew beer better than we did. And they figured they could just. Um, and when people realized what was going on, there was this really strong popular, or populist backlash. And that's what you see in those ads there, the, the Coors ad, where it says, no syndicate, no trust. Uh, or the patronize local industry in the, in the San Luis Valley. That's, that's what they're talking about, is drink local. Sounds an awful lot like what we hear today, doesn't it? Um, so we've gone from our little local brewing scene 
1859, in the 1860s, uh, to a global multinational brewing scene in the 1890s. It took about 30 years. Um, I have totally just tricked you guys into an economics lecture about uh, trends in, in 19th century economics in the West. Um, you thought you were coming to a lecture about beer, but it was, it was really economics. Um, no, you can hear the echoes. You can see, you can see we, as historians, we don't, we, we don't like the phrase that history repeats itself. It doesn't. Every, every case is unique. But every once in a while, it rhymes. And this is definitely one of these <laughs> times where, where you can hear the rhyme. Um, there was, as I said, a populist backlash against the, the British invasion into our brewing industry. And these um, wealthy London capitalists said, ah, to hell with it. We don't need that. And then took their money to the Philippines or India or South America or somewhere. Um, and and Amer uh, American interests regained control of, of the brewing industry. It turns out, though, that we, our ancestors had their eye on the wrong ball. The British weren't the real threat. Prohibition was the real threat. And most of you know probably that uh, Colorado went dry before the rest of the nation, four years before the rest of the nation in 1916. Fortunately, that is where the similarities in our case study end. Prohibition do not, doesn't seem to be uh, on the horizon here in Colorado. Um, why that happened is part of a, a whole other story and one that I will uh, be telling in a museum exhibit in a couple of years. So um, with that, I think I'll just open it up for questions. You can uh, ask me. Oh, I'm sorry. Take a break for beers Wait, take a break for beers. Get yourself uh, lubricated. Give yourself some time to think. I will drink my beer, too, so your answers will be equally good. And then we will reconvene. <laughs> Thank you, everyone.